The average human attention span is 12 minutes long. You have been in your seat for some disgusting multiple of 12 minutes. Uh, and I'm going to spend the next hour telling you that you're not as smart, as funny, or as good looking as you thought. And I need you well rested to just sit there and take it. Okay, so stretch out, stretch out for a minute. Okay, have a seat again. Because the news isn't all that bad. The news is not actually all that bad. I'm going to talk about human nature today. It's a theme that has run through this entire conference. But I'm going to talk about how human nature is both a miracle and a mess. Okay, so let's talk about the miracle first. We'll start with the good news. Uh, the miracle is this. The next time you look up in the night sky, when you're somewhere, when you're out camping or something, and you can see all the stars very well, I want you to look up in the night sky and realize that for every star that you see, there's a human life that has gone by. There are about 107 billion stars in the night sky, and there's about that many people who have ever lived on Earth. That's 15 people for every person living today. And humankind, from the very, very, very inception, from, from the time we are babies, we are absolutely engineered to perfection in many, many ways. Okay, a baby has bones that are four times as hard as concrete. A baby has a heart that pumps blood that is the same salinity as the ocean through its chest, through its body, 1,000 times per day. And a baby sneezes at 100 miles per hour. Our best uh, strong general artificial intelligence only operates at the level of a two-year-old now. And so despite all we've done, despite all of our technological advances, uh, we still operate at the level of a two-year-old with our best thinking at trying to replicate the human miracle. But there's other ways in which we are decidedly less miraculous. And one theme that runs through my book, The Behavioral Investor, is that things that have given rise to our success as a species uh, from a reproductive standpoint... Uh, from an evolutionary standpoint, often serve us very poorly as investors. So primary among these is our tendency to be risk-averse and loss-averse. Because we often forget this, but we are not, uh, we were not, rather, the only humanoid species in town. There were as many as 12. We had Neanderthals, we had Denisovans, we even had a group in Indonesia that, that researchers know as the Hobbits, who I wish we could have hung out with, right? But we weren't the only game in town for a very long time, but we are now. And why is that? Is it because we were culturally superior or artistically? Did we have better communication systems? It's none of these things. The reason why we thrived when other humanoid species passed on is because we were chicken, because we were cowardly. We were more fearful we had bigger fear centers in our brain. We were more fearful. And so when our other humanoid brethren were out uh, yipping and yooping on the plains of the savannah, running after some dangerous animal, we were like, nah, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang back in the cave for a minute. I'm going to hang back here and play it a little safe. So in a very real sense, we are around today. I am around today because my great-great-great-great-grandfather was a chicken because he was a coward. And we bring that same evolutionary cowardice and fear of risk and loss to our investing, which is what we are required to overcome today to be successful. The evolutionary mandate and today's mandate are very, very different indeed. And this fear of loss, this fear of risk is so pronounced 
that our body actually generates physical ways to store risk. So I want you to think back, <clears throat> I want you to think back to your Psych 100 class when you learned about Pavlov and you know how Pavlov rang the bell and made the dogs uh, slobber, right? You remember this, okay? We do this in other ways in psychology where we pair a stimulus, uh, we pair a, a stimulus like a sound with something like an electric shock. And this was done with a group of rats to the point where by just hearing the, the sound, just hearing this ringing of the bell, they would become skittish and afraid. They began to associate this ringing of the bell with skittishness. But just as surely as you can program in a response, you can program out a response. And so these rats were then uh, de-stimulated. They were then taken, they extinguished the response such that the bell no longer produced the stimulus. But the scientists then cut the corpus callosum, so that's the part that, that connects the two hemispheres of your brain. They cut the co corpus callosum in the rats and they rang the bell again. And what happened? The rats freaked out all over again. So to, to put a fine point on it, the fear was always there. Our brain, because it is so uh, averse to losing, and because losing or being in danger is much, much more problematic uh, than having success is good, our brain physically hangs on to fear in a physical, literal sense. Your clients have a file in their brain, a physical space in their brain labeled March of 2009. And I can promise you that the next time we ring that bell, that's gonna come screaming back. Our body is programmed to hang on to fear. So that's, uh, that's evolutionarily where we sit. What about our bodies? What about these bodies that I talked about as being so miraculous? Well, it's true that they're miraculous, but it's also true that they're awfully finicky because anything that moves us from a homeostatic set point gets us to make wonky decisions, bad, backwards decisions. And there's no better uh, descriptor of this than a study that was done on over 1,100 cases uh, that were overseen by Israeli judges uh, over, over a period of time. So they look at over 1,100 cases, and they are trying to isolate the variables that best predicted whether that judge would be harsh or lenient on the person in question. And do you know what the best predictor of harshness or leniency was? It was snacks. It was how recently that judge had eaten, okay? If, whoops, if you are the first person that gets seen in the morning, if you see the judge, oh, come on. If you see the judge right after breakfast, you have about a 70% chance of getting off. If you are the last person that judge sees, before she has her almonds, God help you, you are going to the electric chair, right? Okay. And it's like Brian talked about earlier. We don't attribute, we don't attribute these things to their actual genesis. If you talk to these Israeli judges, if you talk to them, these are some of the smartest people in one of the most developed countries in the world. If you said, judge, why did you send this poor man to the electric chair? They would not say, I had not had a Snickers. They would couch it in terms of legal precedent. They would have a rational sounding good answer for you. And this is a process we all go through. We have weak, fallible bodies that lead us astray all throughout the day. Uh, and in points of weakness, we do things we shouldn't and we attribute them to sensible things. So what about our brains? 
What about our brains, these miracles, our brains? Well, when you're born, your, uh, your brain, you are only 5% of your eventual size, but your brain is already one-third of its size, and it grows another 55% over just the next couple of weeks. Okay? Your brain, uh, we, we lead with our brains, right? We lead with our brains, and your brain is the first thing to really grow. If you kept growing uh, the, as fast as you did in that first year of life, we would be 170 feet tall with gigantic heads. So your brain is a huge part of of who you are, but there's a disconnect because your brain only accounts for 2 to 3% of your body weight as an adult, but it accounts for 25 to 40% of your metabolic expenditure. So this is important. This is at the heart of how our clients make decisions. Your brain is 2 to 3% of your body weight, uh, but 25 to 40% of your caloric expenditure throughout the day. So what does that mean? Our brain is massively, massively inefficient. And our bodies are always looking for ways to shut it down. Our bodies are always looking for ways to think less and to bring that disparity into greater harmony to reduce the delta between its size and its consumption. And there are a million ways that we do this. All of these uh, almost lead us to make bad financial outcomes. Okay? Uh, one example is when your clients watch cable financial news. We, oh, that, that was good, huh? Okay, so when your clients watch cable financial news, they hook folk up, folks up to an fMRI to measure brain activity, and then they show them cable financial news. What happens to the critical thinking and decision-making centers of their brain? They go to sleep, okay? The critical thinking and decision-making centers of your client's brains go to sleep when they're watching cable news because someone else is doing the thinking for them. Now, here is the bad news. That is exactly what they want. That That is the biological imperative, to think less, and they're getting it. But we have to establish relationships of trust such that we are the ones tucking their critical thinking centers into bed and not some person screaming at the screen on on CNBC. Okay? So as we begin to to wrap up this first part, I want to talk about how our imperative is different than the rest of the animal kingdom because sure enough, we are animals. Now, the rest of the animal kingdom has a biological imperative. They have things like teeth and claws and fur and all kinds of things that make them biologically adaptable. We are weak and squishy and soft and hairless, and so we survive on one thing only, and that is by sticking together. That is by sticking together. If, If... I was on a plane that crash landed. If I'm on a plane to, I'm on a plane to New York tonight. If I'm on a plane that crash lands tonight and it's just, it's just me, we, we, we crash land on a deserted island. You know the deserted islands between here and New York? Okay. So we crash land on a deserted island. There's, uh, there's me that survives and one monkey. Okay. Me and one monkey that was on its way to the, to the Bronx Zoo. Okay. Who is there two years later when the rescuers come to find us? Me or that monkey? That monkey, thanks for nothing, okay? Yes, that monkey, that monkey's there. But what about if all of us boarded a plane, it crashes, we all survive, and there's an equivalent number of monkeys. It's a very weird plane. It's a very weird plane. It's it's just, 
It's just the financial intelligentsia and a bunch of monkeys. But this is the plane. <laughs> this is the plane we're on. It crashes. We all both survived. Two years later, what's the human population like? Okay, we're doing good. What's the monkey population like? Extinct. We ate them. They're gone, right? <laughs> we work together and we wipe those fools out, right? But one-on-one, one-on-one, they've got us. So we have a social imperative. We have a sociological imperative and not a biological imperative. And we win by sticking together. And that's mostly a good thing because it allows us to build uh, countries and constitutions and civilizations and religions and all kinds of lovely things. Uh, but it also causes us to make some really dumb decisions. Okay? So if I ask you, and this is non-rhetorical, right? If I ask you which line on the right looks the most like the line on the left, what would you say? C, right? So we know that it's C. I heard some trepidation, which is the correct response when a shrink is presenting to you. You know there's always a twist. You did, you did good. You did good. So this is taken from something called the Ash Experiment. It was done by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Solomon Ash. And what he found is 76% of the time, he could induce people to give the wrong answer. Okay? This is the easiest thing in the world. This is the easiest thing in the world. You all got it right. We looked at it. It's real easy. Any kid could do this. But let me look to this third row here. Let's pretend this third row here are my guys. Okay? So I've got them in on the joke. I'm the doctor. I recruit these six gentlemen right here. And they are in on my joke. So I say, guys, when I come to you, you say B. Okay, when I come to you, I say, which line, uh, you know, it looks the most like the line on the left. You say B, and you really sell it. And then you right here, sir, what's your name? Keith? Keegan. Keegan, Keegan is not in on the joke. And I shouldn't do this to Keegan, because he sat on the front like a good dude. But Keegan is not in on the joke. Keegan is not in on the joke. And so by the time it gets to him, six smart CFA charter holders have said, yeah, it's B. It's definitely B. 76% of the time, the Keegans of the world get it wrong. And we used to think, we used to think that this was due to simple peer pressure. But modern science tells a different story. Because when you hook someone up to an fMRI machine and you have them do the ASH experiment, the Keegans of the world, his brain is going crazy, his brain is lighting up. But the part of his brain that's lighting up is not the piece associated with social pressure. It's the part associated with sensation and perception. So let me blow your mind. Other people being wrong made him see something that wasn't there. It physically altered what he saw. Okay? It's not just simple peer pressure. It physically changed the way that he saw those lines. That is the power of social proof in humankind it can literally warp our perception. There's the peer pressure element, but there's the part where it actually physically warps the way that we see the world. So we have a bit of a problem here. We have a body, right? We have a body that when it gets hungry sends people to the electric chair. We have a brain that's 150,000 years old compared to capital markets which are four or 500 years old, modern capital markets like ours. And then we have a society which, is, which allows us to build a nice economy, uh, but then leads us astray because we're so susceptible to groupthink that we can actually shift our perception. 
And because of these three things, because of these sociological and physiological and neurological impediments to sound investment decision making, we are prone to four primary types of behavioral errors. Okay, so my work in the behavioral investor was all around taking the roughly 200 different types of cognitive biases that psychologists have identified and distilling them down into the four that really matter. Because let me be honest with you, some of these little biases were just to make tenure, okay? Some of these little things, <laughs> some of these things are not a big deal. Somebody needed tenure and they came up with a new one, okay? Because there's about four common tendencies that underlie all of our investment mistakes and, and these are the four that we're gonna talk about today. It's ego uh, or overconfidence, it's emotion or, or thinking with our heart over our head, it's conservatism, uh, which is confusing what we know with what's safe or desirable. And finally, it's attention, which is uh, going, uh, assessing probability, not on the basis of probability, but on the basis of vividness or salience. Okay. So first, let's talk to the men. Okay, let's talk to the men. And, and women, first of all, thank you, for, thank you for being here. Conferences like this are usually underrepresented. We love having you here. Please take this opportunity to look at a man disapprovingly while I read the following statistics, okay? <laughs> in, my next, in, my, in my last book, The Laws of Wealth, I know, that guy's, uh, that guy's despicable, is he not? Okay. <laughs> in my last book, in my last book, The Laws of Wealth, I cited research that found the following. It's a study of 700 men, okay? 100% of them, so all 700, thought that they were friendlier than average, okay? 95% of them thought that they were smarter than average. 94% of them, this is my favorite, 94% of them thought that they were more attractive than average, okay? So the researchers' findings, this is in an academic paper, and is just like the chef's kiss of best closing lines in an academic paper. It said, it would seem that most men think that they are two sit-ups away from dating a supermodel. <laughs> okay? So, so there's a couple of ways, there's a couple of specific ways that we're overconfident, right? Okay, so raise your hand. Now be very careful here. Raise your hand if you know nothing about the Christian Bible, if you have no idea how many books there are in the Christian Bible, sir, sir in the gray sweater, I want you to guess how many books there are in the Christian Bible. Go ahead. 75. Now I want you to give me a range that you are sure includes the right number. My man, my man. <laughs> You can't fool the CFA. You can't fool. Okay, so 75. There's actually 66. You godless heathen. There's 66. There's 66. Okay, no, you're actually the closest. Most people guess around 20, okay? In my, in my study, I did a study of 100 people, okay? 100 people, average guess was, was uh, 27. Okay, average guess is 27. When I ask these non-CFA dummies to guess a range, the range was 25 to 35. Okay? I said, 
you can guess it, pick any range, right? The correct response is like one to a billion, right? Or one to a thousand. And yet most people wanted to guess, you know, I think it's 27, I'm gonna guess 25 to 35. The reason we do this is something called over-precision. A specific type of overconfidence is we think we can be more precise about the future than we actually can. A great example of this, there are multiple 24-7 cable financial news channels. If we were honest, if we were not prone to over-precision bias, there would be one, and it would be called the I have no idea channel, and people would just come on all day and just like shrug and go, yeah, I don't know. I don't really have an S&P target because I have no freaking idea, and neither do you, right? If we, if we were honest, and yet we have people coming on and making all kinds of like to the decimal point predictions about what Bitcoin is gonna do, uh, you know, over the next seven days, right? We don't know. So over-precision is one way that we get it wrong. Another way that we get it wrong is we have what's called rosy retrospection. So one of the studies I cited in the behavioral investor uh, was, a, was a study of day traders, every financial pundit's favorite punching bag. And these, uh, these day traders, they asked them, and, and they had to self-select into this uh, by saying that they had beaten the market over the last year. Okay, so you only take part in this study if you, if you beat the benchmark over the last year. And so these folks self-select in, okay? One third of them had underperformed by 5% or more. 25% of them had underperformed on a one-year basis by 15% or more and thought that they had beaten the market, okay? I had a friend reach out to me recently who is an HR manager and she said, I think I want to get into the asset management business. And I said, go on. <laughs> and she said, I've been crushing it for the last seven or eight years. And I want you to look at my returns and see if you think I'm like a great stock picker. And so I looked at her P&L and her E-Trade account. And she had underperformed the S&P in her equity-only account by about 23% over the last seven years. And I told her, like, look, everyone's crushing it right now. We've all been crushing it, right? We, we do this, we misremember the past, we think it was better than it was. We look back on that family vacation, which was a nightmare in the moment. And we go, wasn't Disney fun? Wasn't that nice, right? This is what we do, we misremember rosy retrospection. This one, this is too adorable. I can't even get through this because the slide is too precious. I know, I'll just wait for it. Boop. Okay. <laughs> so the last thing that we do, the last, uh, the last way that we're overconfident is we think we're luckier than average. Okay, very, very consistently, very, very consistently, if you ask people, uh, you know, what's the likelihood of good things happening to you? What's the likelihood of you staying married? What's the likelihood of you being a millionaire? What's the likelihood of you winning the lottery? People go, yeah, for sure. Yes, yes, yes. Yes to all that, right? And you ask people, okay, uh, what about cancer? What about divorce? What about bad stuff? And everyone systematically goes, nah, that ain't me, right? We ask people, you know, there's great studies that show uh, the average individual thinks that the American family is just going to hell. Like the American family, we think the American family is on a, on a slow train to hell. 
But then we ask them about, how's your family doing? Oh, good. We're good, right? <laughs> and so we do this. We own the optimistic and we delegate the dangerous. And this makes us think that risk management uh, and related concepts are other people's problems and that that kind of stuff doesn't happen to nice people like us. Okay? I don't have time to go, uh, here's some methods here. I don't have time to go through all of them uh, because it's after five o'clock. But um, I want to talk about just a couple here. Okay, so the first of them is, of course, diversification. Study out this week that looked at, at the Russell and found that 7% of stocks account for effectively all of the gains in the Russell. Okay, 7% of stocks. If you think you can pick those 7% of stocks all the time, good luck to you. Diversification is the surest way that we say, I have no idea what's going to happen, so I'm going to own everything. Another thing that we can do uh, is what's called a pre-mortem. We know what a postmortem is. We've been doing postmortems in business forever. We, something goes wrong. We get the team together and go, oh, man, what happened? Right? We get the team together and go, oh, what happened? What, where did we go wrong? But a pre-mortem says before we take that first step, before we hit the buy button, before we take that first step, we are going to get together and say, if something is going to go wrong, what will it be? If something's going to go wrong, what will it be? And before we take that first step, let's risk manage that. Recently got hired on after a decade of being an entrepreneur. I recently joined a longtime client of mine, and an asset manager, Brinker Capital, based outside of Philly. They were scared about bringing me on because I had been young and wild and free for a decade. And they said, look, if you quit in four months, why are you going to quit? And I said, that is a great question. Right? And we built some entrepreneurial upside into uh, my, my contract, right? Because that is how I operate. We anticipated uh, the end from the beginning. Another thing I'll talk about is teaching about toilets. Okay? Great physicist Richard Feynman, the great thinker and physicist Richard Feynman, uh, used to ask people, hey, do you know how a toilet works? And almost to a person, we go, yep. <laughs> I use a toilet a couple times a day, think I got it nailed. I think I'm killing it with the toilets. And he goes, okay, well, well, thank you, good. I've been wondering, explain it to me. And then we go, oh, oh, right? Oh my gosh. Yeah, I don't know how a toilet works. I don't know how a TV works. I don't know how a microwave works. I don't know how any of this works, right? So the next time your client wants to come in and talk about buying Indonesian REITs or whatever off-the-wall thing they want to do, have them lay out from A to Z their investment thesis. And I bet it's going to fall apart, right? I bet it's going to fall apart because when we have to teach, when we have to train or explain it to a child, we, we understand these gaps in our knowledge. So the next thing we're going to talk about is conservatism. Okay, so the formula on the board represents how economists think you made the decision about what type of snack to have at the break. Okay? Is, does this represent your cookie or guacamole eating behavior at the break? Okay. This is what's called subjective expected utility theorem, and it's how economists say we, we make every single decision. We weigh off the pros and cons, and we, you know, we, we weight it and, uh, by time. Uh, that's not how you do it. Okay? Because you make 12.7 million decisions per year. You make 30-something thousand decisions per day, 12 million decisions a year. 
and it strains the limits of credulity to think that you're making all of those in a rational and balanced way. A lot of what we do is we just go with what has always worked before. Clicker, please. Okay, a great example of this. A great example of this is the Mona Lisa. Okay, raise your hand if you think that the Mona Lisa is an exquisite piece of art. Okay, an exquisite piece of art. Thank you, thank you. Well, allow me, someone from Alabama, to explain to you why it is not an exquisite piece of art, okay? So the Mona Lisa has a really fascinating backstory that talks about our tendency to confuse what we know with what is good, okay? Confuse what we know with what is good or what is safe. The Mona Lisa actually for a very long time sat in a dusty, unimportant corner of the Louvre until one day it was stolen. The Mona Lisa was stolen. It took them three days to notice it was missing. Okay? Can you imagine? The Mona Lisa was stolen and nobody noticed for three days. And then suddenly the Mona Lisa is on the news every night because it's like, what happened to this painting? Where is it? Who done it? Now it becomes a point of national interest and everybody's talking about it. So two years later, they recover the Mona Lisa and from that time hence, it has been the most talked about, the most reproduced, the most parodied and discussed piece of art on the planet. But if it had never been stolen, we would have never heard about it to the extent that we have today. It's not that it's so good, it's just that it's so widely known. So how do we get our clients past this tendency towards conservatism, okay? Well, uh, with, with apologies to Peter Lynch, who has a better track record and a couple bucks more than me, um, I would suggest that you buy what you don't know. We have a very, very well ingrained, deeply ingrained tendency to buy what we know. We find that people in the Midwest are overweight agricultural stocks. People in the Northeast are, are overweight financials. Uh, people in Greece during the Greek debt crisis had over 80% of their equity exposure to Greek stocks. Yikes, right? We already buy what we know. We already do this. So what we have to help our clients do uh, is become familiar with the unfamiliar and familiarize them with things that they would never in a hundred years uh, want to seek out. The next thing that we have to do is not know what we own because the research shows that once uh, financial literacy works, okay, financial literacy works until we know what we own. And at that point, we filter every piece of news Right? We can hear generic news about Apple and it doesn't hurt, but the minute we know that we own Apple stock, every piece of news becomes filtered through that lens. So research shows that financial literacy is, uh, financial education is best when it's product agnostic. We want to teach generalities and not specifics. Next thing we want to do is procrastinate a little bit. When people are given two decisions and they have to make a decision in a hurry, 82% of the time they go with the status quo. If you're in a hurry, you just go with what works. 
But if you let people sleep on it for one night, it's almost 50-50. Let people sleep on it for one night. A powerful behavioral intervention for you to do with your clients is to say you really ought to sleep on this, but then you back it up with this research. And then finally, if you're trying to gather assets, if you're trying to, uh, if you're trying to uh, build your business, one of the most powerful things that you can do is be heard of. Okay? Just to be heard of. Because we confuse having heard of something with something being good all the time. This is my one political comment, and I will roast both sides equally. Do you think that Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton of the 365 million Americans were the two most qualified to lead our country in the last election? Statistically, it is improbable, is what I will say to you, right? It is improbable that they were our top two choices, but they were both household names, and so that's who we got. So the next behavioral tendency is attention, which is our tendency to confuse uh, vividness or salience or ease of recall with likeliness. Now let me try and give a, a, an example of this. We all remember where we were uh, on 9-11, right? We all remember where we were. It it's divides history into before and after, and it's an unforgettable moment. And 3,000 Americans lost their lives on 9-11, and we'll always remember them. But what we have forgotten is that there was a second unheralded tragedy that was a result of 9-11 that owed to the attention bias, and that is, if you were a frequent flyer in the, in the wake of 9-11, you remember how scary it was to get back on a plane. You remember the uncertainty and the fear and what are we going to do and could this happen again and do we have sufficient safety protocols? And as a consequence of that, people stopped flying. People stopped flying and people started driving much, much more. If anything was even close to being able to drive it, people would, would do it. So we had record numbers of auto fatalities that year as a, consequence of as a consequence of people being scared of flying. Over 1,600 more people died with just that last quarter of the year as a result of people's increased driving behavior because of their fear of another low probability, high impact event like 9-11. Another half as many, again, lives as were lost in the attack itself. Because we focused not on the odds, not on the odds, but on the fear, on the salience, of the vividness of that attack. And we do this uh, all the time in big ways and small. Another thing that this, ten, uh, this uh, attention bias causes us to do is it causes us to overlook simple solutions. It gives us what uh, Brian Portnoy calls in his book a fetish for complexity. Okay? It gives us this fetish for complexity and we think because we work in financial markets that are complex dynamic systems, we think that we must meet complex dynamic systems with equally complex dynamic solutions and that is not the case. Because the more complex and dynamic a system, the more simple the solution needs to be to avoid data mining and overfitting. And my favorite example of this uh, comes from the, the space shuttle launches. 
because I grew up in a town that we affectionately refer to as Rocket City. It has a proud uh, heritage. The Marshall Space Flight Center is there. Uh, the Space and Rocket Center is there. So I grew up as a kid in Huntsville, Alabama, absolutely nuts about the shuttle program. And as long as I could remember, um, the shuttle, the, the fuel tanker in the middle of the shuttle was that sort of ugly rust orange color. But if you look at old, old pictures of the shuttle program, that, that white fuselage is actually white. And here's the story behind that. When the fuselage was white, they needed to cut weight. They needed to cut just, uh, just south of 700 pounds. So NASA begins uh, trying to shave some aerodynamic, uh, to improve the aerodynamics. They try and experiment with space-age materials to make uh, the, the, the shuttle uh, lighter. They try every complicated thing until an hourly line worker, who I like to think is from Alabama like us, right? Who an hourly line worker walks by and goes, what are they trying to do? Cut 700 pounds off the weight. Stop painting the tank. <laughs> and they did, and it was 700 pounds of paint, okay? What are the solutions? What are the solutions that you are overlooking in your clients' lives because we don't have eyes to see simplicity? Okay, one more quiz. This one's not a trick. <laughs> Good poker face. Um, okay, <laughs> one more quiz. Uh, I want you to guess when I give you the sign, I want you to guess whether the next dot is going to be red or green, okay? 80% of the time it's going to be green, 20% of the time it's going to be red. Arrive at your mental model, on your mark, get set. Heard some reds. Somebody nailed it. Somebody got the red, okay? Okay, so we're gonna go through this. I, we, we don't have time to do them all. That's the best. CFA crowds are no fun. <laughs> I'm never, take me off your list, never again. <laughs> Give me some real irrational screw ups, that's what I need. <laughs> so most of you did what is the rational thing to do, which is what? Guess green every time. If it's 80-20, we're gonna guess green every time, okay? That's what rats do. <laughs> when you put rats in a cage and they get food when it's green and they get shocked when it's red, they learn soon, just like, yeah, it's mostly going to be green. We're going to take a hit now and then, but I'll be, I'll be full. I'll be full. It's good, right? Okay, so rats get this right. Rats get this right 80% of the time. They have an 80-20 distribution. They get it just right, okay? Humans get this right 63% of the time, Okay? Humans do worse than rats because we overcomplicate it. And this is with a known distribution. This is when you tell people like I did, here's a known distribution, here's what's coming. And people still want to get cute. People still want to try and time it, right? And then, like the gentleman over here who guessed the red right, <laughs> they think they're geniuses and then they keep, <laughs> and then they keep trying to time it and we keep getting, uh, getting screwed up there, right? So the simpler, the better. So there's a couple of ways that we can overcome attention bias. First of all, ask yourself at every corner, look at every piece of your business and say, is there a simpler way? Is there a simpler way? Is there a cheaper way? Is there a better way? Ruthlessly attack those inefficiencies in your business, okay? 
Also understand that every piece of data that you're looking at for an investment needs to check a couple of boxes. It needs to be theoretically sound, first of all. There needs to be a reason why it works. If you look at long-term factors like value and momentum and quality, there's always a reason, there's a philosophical pedigree behind that. There's a reason why it works. It needs to show up in the data too, but that's not enough. Because we see stats like there's a 96% correlation between the, the production of butter in Bangladesh and, and moves in the S&P 500, right? That's a real thing, okay, historically. Because the Fed releases 45,000 pieces of economic data each year, and when you regress them all against each other, guess what? Some stuff comes out, okay? So it needs to be theoretically sound, it needs to be reflected in the data, and if you want it to persist, it needs to have a behavioral quality, okay? Long-term factors have a behavioral quality. Why is it that many of these premia exist long after they should? It's because they're hard to implement. They're hard to implement, and I will bet on people making dumb choices from here until the cows come home. The US started putting nutrition labels on food uh, in the early 90s because our population was getting fat, okay? So we said, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna inform consumers. Now, every time you buy ground beef or crackers or whatever, you're gonna know exactly how many calories, fat, sodium, everything. It's all gonna be right there and people are gonna make great decisions, okay? Since that time, twice as fat, twice as fat, three times the level of morbid obesity since we started labeling, uh, labeling food, two times the level of obesity, three times the level of morbid obesity, because that's not how people think. If you can find an investment factor that's behavioral, ride that puppy for the rest of your life, okay? How else do we overcome this blindness to probability? Well, we, we take an outside view, we get people in our team who think differently. You know, one of the things that I find, my very first job out of my PhD was uh, with a bank, and I would, I would do personality assessments and IQ tests for bankers. And it was the, right? And it was the great, <laughs> and, it, and it was the greatest, it was the greatest gift a young, broke, impressionable kid could ever get because I knew I was smarter than the masters of the universe, like from the moment, I, I was like, this guy is doing what? <laughs> he gets paid what with his 85 IQ? Yeah, so I, I knew I could do it all. But we, we bring in people with outside views because what I found when I was assessing the personality of these bankers is that we tended to hire people who were just like us. We tended to fill our investment councils and our teams with people who see the world that we do, and we have to be very intentional about hiring for, for outside views. And then we need to look at the base rates. Okay? Here's a simple way to look at base rates. We just need to look at probabilities. The next time you're at a wedding, the happy couple standing there just basking in the glow of a glorious day. You go up to them, tap them on the shoulder, and go, guys, odds? And they go, what? You go, well, the odds that this works out, what do you think? <laughs> right? And if they say anything less than 50% chance of divorce, they're being impractical. They're being impractical, right? No. Base rates, we look whenever we can at the likelihood of something occurring and we try and tilt probability, uh, tr try and tilt probability in our favor at every turn. Last one is emotion. 
Last thing that we do is we confuse our emotions uh, with our risk management. We confuse how we feel about something with whether or not it's safe. If you look at U.S. history, what percentage of the time has the U.S. stock market been down 15 years later on a nominal basis? At a 15-year holding period, has there ever been a period where you lost money? Not one. Not one. Long-term investing is super, super safe. And yet people don't think it is because it's boring. Okay? People don't think it's safe because it's boring and it has numbers and they don't want to think about it. What about boating? Is boating safe? Boating is horrible. <laughs> boating is so unsafe. But if I call you up and say, hey, you want to go out on my boat? You go, yeah, hell yeah, let's go. Right? Because it, it's fun. We confuse what's fun and what makes us emotionally feel good with what's safe. Okay? There's a lesson in here for us, and you've heard it all throughout this conference. We need to be humanizing the investor experience. If we could make this a little less, a, a little less like drudgery and a little more like discovery of deeply held values and personalities and who people are, if we could make the wealth management process, dare I say, a little bit fun, people would have better attitudes uh, towards what we do. Uh, because, because emotion was the original risk allies, right? Emotion was the original risk allies, and we get scared about things uh, that, uh, that, that don't seem fun to us, okay? So, this, this, this slide, I got to erase this slide, because it always lands like a lead balloon. It's just heavy, okay? So here we go. I should have I set it up like that. So there's research into emotion and how we think uh, about bias, so there's research that shows uh, that happy people, raise your hand if you're happy. You're here in South Florida. Who's happy? Raise your hands if you're happy. Let's look around at the happy people, okay? <laughs> look around at the happy, keep them up, happy people. You're happy. <laughs> happy people tend to be kind of racist, you dirtbags, okay? <laughs> the, re the research shows that happy people tend to be kind of racist uh, because we, when we're in a good mood, Okay, when we're in, we're in an elevated mood state, we don't want anything to <laughs> pop that balloon. We don't want anything to, to fade that high. And having to think in, in uh, individual nuanced ways kind of, kind of kills that high. So we think in biased, stereotypical ways. And the same thing is true of really sad people. Okay? People on either end of the emotional spectrum are really, really prone to bias. And so when we understand this, we learn the lessons of uh, the 12-step program. When I, was in, um, when I was in grad school, I had to go sit in on 12-step programs. And uh, it was very eye-opening for me as a 23-year-old Mormon kid to go to Narcotics Anonymous, right? But I would have to sit on these 12-step programs. And one of, the, one of the things that I learned there is they have an acronym called HALT. And it stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. You should never make a decision when you are H-A-L-T. Hungry, angry, angry, lonely, or tired. And I would say substitute any strong emotion there, whatever your sort of emotion of choice is. When we are in, in polarized emotional states, bias enters our lives in real ways. And the opposite is also true. 
There's a couple of, a couple of kinds of people who make really, really excellent financial decisions. Okay? Uh, one type of people is people who are bilingual. Okay, so I'm, I'm bilingual. I speak Filipino and I speak English. So let's use me as an example. People who are bilingual did much better, did much, much better on investment and financial planning tasks than those who were not when they were asked to think in their non-dominant language. So you ask me to think about my retirement in Tagalog, and because I'm not as good at Filipino as I am at English, I have to slow down, hit the brakes, be more deliberative, and approach it in new emotionless ways. Okay? So people who speak a second language are better because it, it stripped emotion out was effectively what it did. The other group of people who made excellent gamblers and investors were, I shouldn't laugh, were people with traumatic brain injuries to the parts of their brain associated with, with emotional processing. Okay. So these people who had been in bad motorcycle accidents and other things had no, no ability to process emotion. So what could they not do? They could not decide what flavor of ice cream to have. They could not decide whether to wear the gray suit or the blue suit because all of these things have an emotional undercurrent to them that we seldom recognize. Even something as simple as vanilla or chocolate has an emotional undercurrent to it that influences our decision making, but they were killer gamblers and they were great at investment tasks. So after the show, I will be starting the first ever traumatic brain injury hedge fund, and I'm looking for seed investors. We got a whole crew of bilingual people with brain damage, and we're going to crush it, okay? The point is, though, the point is, the reason that they were so good is that they took emotion out of, uh, out of the equation. So there's a couple of ways that we can take emotion out of, our, uh, out of our processes. The first and easiest and probably the most powerful is just to automate them. Okay? In, the law, in my book, The Laws of Wealth, I wrote about, uh, I wrote about a meta-analysis, so a study of all the studies on discretionary, uh, discretionary decision-making in investment management versus rules-based decision-making. Um, rules-based decision-making won the day or equal the day 94% of the time and did so at a fraction of the cost. There's just, there's candidly nothing in the behavioral literature that, that suggests discretion can be rules-based approaches. Uh, the next thing that we can do is learn to meditate. You know, Jason Voss right here, uh, formerly of the CFA Institute, uh, did a great series through the CFA Institute on the power of meditation. I would recommend it to all of you. Uh, and then finally, if we can't, uh, if we can't beat it, join it. Uh, because my favorite study that I've ever found, my favorite study in the financial literature I've ever found, has to do with using emotion. And it had to do with a group of low-income savers who were putting aside money for a rainy day. They're making eight bucks an hour. They have no money. You can't bleed a stone. They are like legit poor. And they're trying to get them to set aside just a couple weeks for a rainy day. They try rewards. They try punishments. Nothing works. These people are just strapped. Until they show them a picture of their kids. They show them a picture of their kids. So when they log into their account that they're using to measure the study, the researchers put in a picture of their kids for five seconds that would flash up before they could make a move with their money. When they did this, 
savings behavior increased 250% because we used that positive emotion to push you to a better place. So how can we use goals-based investing and really get into the emotion? I do not think we're doing a good enough job yet. Okay, last slide. I spent last summer in Canada because I live in Georgia, and why would you do that to yourself in the summer? So I spent last summer in Canada, in Calgary, and I did a study with a, with a bank there uh, around the advisor of the future. Now we interviewed, uh, we interviewed thousands of North Americans about what they wanted from their wealth management professionals, and we found these six things, okay? These six things. They wanted you to be smart and knowledgeable. Check, you're here, right? They wanted you to have good bedside manner. They wanted customized portfolios and customized advice that was bespoke and tailored to them. They wanted technological access. They wanted to be communicated with in a way that spoke to them. And most of all, they wanted peace of mind. I show this slide with you because I think it's a powerful way to, to think about how your business is operating and how you're positioned for the future. But I want you to also notice something. We've spent this whole hour talking about human behavior, and I've tried to give you sort of four pillars that you can look out for and build your business around. Four of these six hallmarks of the advisor of the future have behavior at their root, and this is the source of your enduring competitive advantage. You've heard it again and again today. Stuff like access, technology, it's necessary but not sufficient because as soon as you get it, we know how technology goes. The other person gets it, the price goes down, and what was yours alone uh, one day, now everybody in the industry has. But understanding your clients, understanding who they are, what makes them tick, and how you can keep them from being their own worst enemy will be an enduring advantage that you will have for life. The work you do is important. The people you serve are beneficiaries of this good work but your understanding of them and their behavior sets a ceiling for your effectiveness. So it's my hope that you will make yourself a student of the game, a student of behavioral finance, and get better and better at managing client behavior. Thank you. <clears throat>